House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Are in the interview part of the show, and joining us today is a Canadian author, and the book we're going to be talking about is The Trials of Albert Strobel, and it's Love, Murder, Justice and the End of the Frontier, and that's Chad Reimer. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. So, Chad, let's first of all, now, is this your first book that you've written? No, no, oh. it's uh, fourth that I've published. So, wow. Okay. Uh, my previous one, which had come out, which came out about a year ago, was on um, a lake that was drained in the 1920s. It was a more historical book. Um, okay. called, uh, you know, before we lost the lake and how Sumas Lake uh, had been this major feature in between in the Fraser Valley. So. Wow. Oh, what made you get into this book? Like, this is a, this is a true crime book, right? So this is more, mm -hmm. a little bit more different than just your typical history. Uh, how did you find mm -hmm. this case and what, what uh, got you into it? Yeah, it's, it's, uh, I became aware of it when I was researching the history of Sumas Lake and Sumas Valley, and I came across the, you know, as I'm going through the newspapers, uh, researching uh, how people were using the lake and so forth, I came across this um, coverage of the, the trial of Albert Strobel, um, which went on for quite a while, and I thought, wow, this is quite... Uh, quite an event. Maybe I can get a, a little article out of it somehow. And so I, I, I bookmarked, you know, as it were, those those newspaper reports. And then when I finished work on a Sumeris Lake book, I came back to this. And uh, I realized that, you know, I wanted to look into it more. Um, found a lot of records on it uh, at the archives in Victoria. Um, and uh, also some records, because it's, Strobel was American, well, and he, he lived in BC for a bit, and then he's back in the States. And I, so I found out more information in the archives down in Washington uh, State, and um, it just all came together. It was just a fascinating story. And um, still I thought, hey, this will be part of a, a larger book that I'm doing. But then it grew into a book itself. <laughs> so hmm. it, uh, yeah, and it, it it is a departure. I mean, I'm a, I'm a trained historian. I, I I've got a PhD in history, and I, I taught history for quite a while. And so, I mean, I still think of myself as a historian, but I I, I like reading true crime and and um, mostly historical true crime. Um, and also uh, mystery novels with a historical setting. So this mm -hmm. one let me kind of stretch my legs a bit. How, 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 how did you find it? But when you do something like this took place where in? It was in 1893. Um, so when you're researching something that, that long ago, um, how, how much work does that take? That must take quite a bit of, of effort to find all these records. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, for a book like this, it would be about a year of the research, and then 
a year of putting it together and writing it. And, and that's full time. I've been able to work it out so that I can work on this full time. So um, it is a lot of research. It, it doesn't feel like work because I love doing it so much. Um, uh, but it, uh, it it is important for me. It's like um, I, I, I want to get everything that, that is available on a to- uh, such a topic and, you know, and then sit down and try to sift through and make a good, good story out of it. So hmm. um, I, I haven't decided which, I mean, the reason, which I enjoy more, whether it's the research or the writing. The writing's harder, but uh, when it's going, I certainly enjoy it. But I do enjoy the research. Um, yeah, yeah, it's uh, pretty interesting finding out things, you know, in, in the past mm-hmm. and researching. That's always good. Now, 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 what is the premise of the story? We're talking about someone that uh, was murdered. Let's talk. Let's talk about the actual murder and the case. What What do we know about that? Well, his body, the, the, the victim was a, a, a fellow known as John Marshall. That's what he put down on his legal documents. Um, he was from the Azores Islands um, off the coast of Portugal. He came to the States in the 1850s or 60s and then came up north and ended up in British Columbia in the 1880s. Um, he was make, making a go of, of, uh, of farming. He had a 160 acres, um, just north of the border where, uh, Sumas City in Washington is, and now on your way to where Abbotsford is in, in British Columbia. And he was making a go of it farming, and, um, his body was found, uh, on his veranda in, February uh, in um, the spring of 1893, and uh, he had been been shot twice, and uh, you know an investigation followed and so forth. And um, Albert Strobel uh, was arrested for it, Uh, and then you know he went to trial, and things followed after that. and then, uh, you know, in the trial and every all the story, you know, the information started to come out, of course, as to what might have happened, what did happen, and, you know, uh, all the interesting stuff behind it. So, like, so when, when someone is found like that that's dead, um, and especially in a farm place, and this is in the 1890s, uh, how much policing was there and how, how good were they? Uh, there was no policing. There were no, there were no policemen, um, outside of New Westminster. Uh, so this is about, mm, uh, 30 miles away, I, 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 I guess, 20, 30 miles away. Yeah. And w- w- what, what happened was they had to telegraph. So the, the, a, a neighboring farmer, uh, who was an, an American, an American trapper, who had just been staying, temporarily staying in, in, in the area. He came across the body. He ran down to the uh, railway station two miles away. Um, they, and at the railway station, they telegraphed the, uh, the police in New Westminster. And um, the, the policeman, a fellow by the name of William Moresby, 
who he was a, an acting policeman. His first job was actually warden of the of the provincial jail. He and another, the coroner, who wasn't a policeman either, um, headed out. And so, Marsh, the, the the body was found at about five thirty or so in the morning, and it took until two two in the afternoon for the police to actually arrive. Um, and Moresby had had to deputize. He had the power to deputize. Um, special constables, so he did that. And then there, there, he also enlisted the help of, of, uh, so by name of Lucas, David Lucas, who was the part-time marshal of Sumas City on the American side. And so it was, you know, Moresby was the only one with experience, the only official with experience as a policeman. Uh, Lucas had experience as a policeman too, but he was American. He had no authority. So there, you know, there was not police presence on the ground at the time. And certainly their, uh, ability to mount a, an investigation was, um, you know, very, very crude. Uh, they didn't, didn't isolate the crime scene, of course. By the time, Morrisby got to, to where the body was, it would, it, it, at least it was left where it was killed, where uh, he, he hadn't been moved inside, um, but there were perhaps 20, 30 people traipsing all over uh, John Marshall's um, homestead, his home and his yard and everything. So it was, um, it got off to a, a, a poor start. Uh, like pretty much every other murder investigation would have at the time outside of New York, uh, yeah. New York, sorry, New yeah. Westminster and Victoria, where, where they had, you know, full-time police officers. Yeah, but pretty, pretty interesting. But now it only took them two days to arrest Albert Strobel. So why was the arrest so fast? Like, what was it that made him the suspect? <laughs> His own moves. Um I mean, you know, when I'm thinking back and, and thinking, well, you know, it, it, at how poor the policing was and so forth, it, I think, well, it's a wonder that they find the murderer at all. But then it's also a flip side where there are there are so few people there and everybody knows who everybody is that in, in, in a certain way it's harder to hide because if you did do something suspicious, somebody will notice. Um, or if you're in the area and a, a new person in the area, someone will notice. Uh, so, I mean, it's kind of, you know, flip side to it. But the reason why Strobel was arrested within two days, he was, he was suspected right from the start because people were saying, coming forward and saying, well, he was... He was seen the, the afternoon before. He was perhaps one of the last to 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 see John Marshall alive, um, and he had been. Uh, he actually was helping Marshall during the, the the previous day, and then he came out into the field to do some work, and he did some work with another neighbor, and he was hot, so he took off his jacket, 
threw it aside, and then took out his revolver and threw it onto his jacket. And this was in full sight of the fellow who's working beside him. So um, when Marshall was found shot the next day, his neighbor immediately suspected Strobel and told the police that told uh, the, the police when they came in that well you know I think it's him and really they didn't the investigation involved trying to find proof that Strobel did it that that was the investigation mm. so it, it was tunnel vision from the very start yeah yeah they had their mind on it but now it yeah. says it says that Strobel was really, what he was twenty years old. But he was physically disabled and short. So, what what kind of dis- disability did he have? Uh, it wasn't it wasn't diagnosed, of course. Probably didn't even might not, never even have seen a doctor. But his right leg was permanently um, it was kind of locked. The knee was locked in a in a in a, in a bent position, and his his foot was was twisted inward. Um, so he, he, he had been told he had inflammation of, of the bone. So it would have been some form, um, it might even have been an injury, broken leg when he was younger, although he never mentioned it. Broken leg that was not fixed, or it could have been some sort of arthritic or bone disease that, that had done it. Um, and he, so, but it, sounds as if he'd had it for for a while and he had he had adjusted to that um he used a cane to to walk and 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 so um hmm. he, he yeah he was already short they measured measured him up at five foot four and then when he would be having to bend down of course he would have be, be even shorter with 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 uh while he was walking Hmm. So, like, what did the community think? Like, so when he got arrested two days later, mm-hmm. was was mm-hmm. everybody in shock? Or were they thinking, oh, he's not a good guy? Or like, what was the atmosphere? It it was divided. He he was thought of as a, a good boy. Uh, everyone said he was, he was a good boy, and it, it was always boy. It was never a man, of course. <laughs> in that time if you're 20 21 years old you're a man yeah you know but he was thought of as a boy and it's partly because of his disability uh, and partly because of he was just you know developmentally was was not the sharpest tool in the shed emotionally he, he he didn't seem to be get things that other people did so People, uh, by and large, he was, you know, a well-meaning, harmless, you know, fellow. He he was willing to help people out without getting paid. He would would, would go over to Marshall's place and clean it up, and go out help in the field and without getting paid. And so he he was thought of as a, a harmless uh, harmless character, and. Um, so the news, yes, it came as a shock to most people. Um, although most, most of them also had heard the evidence of him being seen with a revolver, and and that. So it it, it was a it was a shock to what they had thought of him, of him, you know, what he was capable of before, 
but it wasn't a shock when they started hearing all this circumstantial evidence against him. But still, it, it was, you know, even through his second, his two trials, public opinion was was split over whether he was guilty or not. So Now, now um, was he an American, Marshall? Uh, Marshall was Portuguese, right? Strobel, Strobel oh. was American. Okay, John so Marshall, did, yeah. did that split? Yeah, yeah. Was it like an American? The Americans on the Bellingham that side were pro him, like he didn't do it, and the Canadians thought he did. Like it was it split with the country? No, 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 no. Okay. There, in a lot of ways, the border didn't exist in the minds of the people who lived. Uh, you know, I, it's Sumas Prairie to the you know north of the line BC, and then south of the line. Uh, it's it's one of the few areas in BC that is just flat, and so geographically there's no split. Um, the people, you know, a good half of the number of people living north of the line were Americans, and they had just come there not that many years before. And the only shops in town were in Sumas City on the south side, and so everybody on you know, from the, the BC side, man, if they needed to see the, a doctor or go to the grocery store or whatever, they just went across the line. And the line didn't really exist. And so it, it, there wasn't this, you know, Americans rallying around an American and the Canadians thinking, you know, oh, he's a violent American that came in and did some killing. It, it wasn't that at all. So, um, it, it just split upon, you know, what, what the the people were willing to to think of this guy that they used to think of as as this harmless. Um, so, so yeah. So yeah. trials trials here in Canada typically, uh, especially a murder trial, sometimes can take up to two to three years before it goes to trial. Now mm-hmm. I know this guy was tried quite quickly. Um, can you talk about that and uh, what you learned? Well, actually, for the time, his trial was, his second trial came quickly after the first. Um, that would not have happened. But his first trial, the, the, the uh, murder was in, um, in the spring, in April, and, and his trial didn't open up until November. And the reason why is that, um, the courts held two sittings a year. Uh, for criminal trials, serious criminal trials. One in the spring, uh, April, May kind of thing, and one in the, um, yeah, actually one in the spring, which is uh, uh, late May and June, and one in the fall, which is November. The trial was supposed to, it was put up onto the, the spring docket, and it would have been heard on the spring docket. But the the prosecute the crown asked that it be postponed um, because uh, the policeman in the case William Morrisby was was ill, so it could have been heard just like weeks after. And some of the murder trials were heard just weeks after they occurred. It all depended where you you know like at what point. Um, and and the courts only sat for a couple of weeks. So then the, the trial was put back to November. So from April through November, he had to wait in prison 
um, for the trial because bail isn't granted for for murder. Um, and the first trial uh, was a long trial by the time, by you know over almost two weeks, and then that uh, that ended in a in a an even split six six in the jury. And then, because you know, the the judge was convinced that he was guilty. He told the jury that <laughs> the, the defendant was guilty, but the jury was split. And the the crown then asked, "Well, can we move the trial and have it done in Victoria? Because, and, and, and we could we could do that within two, you know a week or two because Victoria was still sitting with its trials, and so." Within two weeks, it moved from New Westminster to Victoria. So that was very quick, you know, after the first trial. It was very quick um, that a second trial was granted. So so, so what happened now? What, what, kind of, um, what kind of evidence did they have against him? Hmm. The evidence that was presented was uh, his revolver. It was a cheap... Five, uh, five bullet um, revolver that he had gotten off a friend, and um, he actually had, all of the evidence that was seized was seized on the American side of the border by this fellow David Lucas, who was a character straight out of you know central casting in Hollywood. It's, you know, if you wanted. Uh, uh, a whiskey drinking, tobacco chewing uh, lawman. He was your man. He actually was the brother of younger brother of his fellow who founded one of the first private detective agencies along the coast. Um, and this, the, he learned all the tricks in the book how to plant evidence and and <laughs> so forth. So all of the evidence that was obtained was obtained by him in the United States and then just taken across the line and given to the Canadians. So it, it, all the evidence would have been thrown out in courts nowadays. He had, uh, had uh, Strobel had voluntarily given his revolver to Lucas because uh, Lucas fooled him into doing that. Lucas found a couple of spent cartridges, uh, a couple of loaded cartridges in Strobel's room, and then conveniently, three, four days after the murder, found some uh, spent cartridges just outside Strobel's window. Lucas gra- grabbed his revolver. He got he fooled him in uh, Strobel into giving him his, his revolver. He found a couple of cartridges, live ones, in Strobel's room. He found a couple of empty cart- cartridges. Uh, outside of Lucas's window, although those are, it's very dodgy how they could be so clean and obviously right in the open after, after, uh, so many days. And then of course there was the evidence of that, oh, he'd been seen beforehand. He'd been seen on the, uh, um, walking around Marshall's place, um, at, at certain times. And, and so that that was largely the evidence. It, it was interesting because it was probably the first 
case where the conviction rested upon the ability to, um, or at least to convince the jury that the a slug that came came from the victim that had killed him came out of the gun was matched to the gun that was possessed by the defendant. And so that kind of ballistics matching, specifically one slug to one gun, had never been done in Canada. And this was one of the first times. Um, and this was in an age they nobody knew nobody was aware of the fact that um, well I mean people were aware of the fact that that when a when a when a bullet travels through a barrel a rifled barrel that uh, marks were made are made um, which of course we know now but they didn't know until the 1920s work done by an American that every bullet fired um, has markings that were unique to a barrel. Each barrels are like fingerprints, right? So they were 20, 40 years away from that realization. But what they used was what gunsmiths would get up and say, well, the marks on this bullet were, were made by the rust in the barrel, and I shot another, another uh, you know, round uh, into a bale of cotton, and the, the marks that were are on that round that I shot are similar, and they're both made by this rust that is on the barrel, in the barrel, and that's how this, that's the match that the jury was convinced of, uh, in this case. Hmm. So and th now, so we jump to the uh, second trial in Victoria. Now they found him guilty on that one, didn't they? They did. So, did, so he was sentenced to death. Um, so, did they end up killing him over this crime? Uh, <laughs> should I say spoiler alert? <laughs> oh, <laughs> okay. Well, we don't, I, we don't I have tried, to. Do, I, I, yeah. I, what I'm really fascinated with is, is you know, after his conviction, the story isn't over. You know, there's still a lot more drama involved, uh, and and. Um, he actually, uh, he's, Strobel has been saying, for, you know, from November to December, that he was, he's completely innocent. He wasn't there. He had gone fishing. And, and, um, his defenders had been saying, yes, you know, they were convinced of that. And after, after the conviction, there was a, a bit of a groundswell, people who were still convinced of his innocence. Um, and they, started petitioning the federal government to make sure, oh, no, you know, we can't ex can't have him executed because the evidence just wasn't quite there. Of course, the other side said he was guilty. But he uh, then uh, does a series of confessions, each one a little different from the one before, and essentially ends up saying that, that um, it was self-defense, that he... Marshall had attacked him. He was in his house, and Marshall had attacked him. And uh, they had been talking about this, this girl, who the name of Elizabeth Bennett. Uh, sorry, uh, Elizabeth, um, um, oh boy, Bartlett, <laughs> who, 
me and names don't go well together, uh, that he, he, Strobel and she were um, unofficially or officially engaged, and he comes, in his confession, he says that Marshall made bad comments about her. They got to fighting, and he he shot him in self-defense. And Strobel makes this confession a number of times to different people, even though his lawyer is going, uh, having, a, having a fit trying to make him stop. And you're still wondering, okay, well, is this going to be enough to get him off the death sentence, at least? Uh, he certainly thinks it will. So, um, it, you know, it goes into this package. Every execution at the time had to be approved by the federal cabinet and the governor general. And the only decision that had to be made was to either execute or have a life sentence. And so Strobel's only hope was to get a life sentence. And that's what he hoped his, his confession, you know, explaining how it all happened. That's, uh, what, what he was banking on. Uh, in terms of trying to save his life, so right, yeah. So, so when, at the end of the end of the story, like when you um, wrote this book, and and finished it, um, so when people read it, what is it that you want them to take away from from reading the book? Uh, <laughs> well, I, I I want them to. Um, well, first and foremost, I want them to buy the book and read it. And (laughs) I I want them to get the enjoyment out of reading about another period of time when things were done differently um, and about reading the human stories, you know, uh, that people you read about in history were real people. They were... You know, we could have been walking through that time if we'd been born earlier. So, I, you know, I want people to make that kind of connection to, to that, you know, that these are real breathing people and they might, they, they might do stupid things just like we, we do. Um, there aren't necessarily good guys and bad guys. Um, although, you know, there sometimes are good guys and bad guys. Um, so I guess what I want people, I, I, it's kind of, you know, um, it, it's escapism in the sense of taking us out of our here and now and connecting us to another time and things that done differently and doing it through a, a, a story that has a bit of suspense in it. So I guess that's it, mm. you know, entertaining yeah. and... You learn, if you learn a bit, that's great. So, yeah. Oh, so um, now, do you have a website or a site for the book or for yourself that people can come find you or find out more about the books you've done, or do you just uh, are in social media? What's, what's uh, what? No, no, I'm not on social media. <laughs> uh, the book itself, more information on it, can, uh, people can Google Caitlin Press, C A I T L I N. Uh, press and and they have a bit more on there. Um, there is a podcast available done by 
Soba out in in Ontario, um, a podcast called Real Murder, and that 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 was a an hour and a bit with me talking about it. Caitlin Press actually she she just put out trying to you know in this, this with the coronavirus and everything, I can't go do readings, I can't and do book launches and such. So we've had to be creative in terms of of getting. Uh, information about the book out. So at their website, at Caitlin Press, um, there's a, a, a couple of minute uh, book trailer where it, it kind of uh, rolls through pictures as it's enticing you to read it. Um, and uh, uh, they have asked me to put up a, a, a two or three minute, you know, fake, you know, uh, me talking and video videoing uh, uh, an introduction to the book. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, well, that's okay. Yeah. Um, what we'll do is we'll, we'll put the book up on our site. We'll have it so people that are listening can just click on it and pick up the book anytime. And uh, hope, hopefully uh, things get better with the coronavirus and everything, and you can get out and do some readings and writings and signings exactly. and whatever else. Actually, wow. Actually, no, yeah. for... for Access as well. I, I, it, it is it is on Amazon, both in the state right. and Canada. Uh, Barnes and Noble, I believe, as well in the states and chapters Indigo, uh, chapters in Indigo in Canada, um, and then a number of other book selling sites as well. So, um, fantastic! It yeah. is. It, it all helps. It all helps. Yeah. So now uh, the book we're talking about is the Trials of Albert. Strobel, and it's Love, Murder, and Justice at the End of the Frontier, and our guest is the author, Charles Chad Reimer. Thank you for being here, Chad. Thank you so much. Thanks, Chad. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. By George, he's got it. It is the end. I'll see you. If you're lying to me, I'll be back. This has been a production of Something Wave Media.